Amen. So when someone wants to become a doctor, they have to do their medical residency, right? So this is where they go to a specific hospital and they commit themselves to so many months, usually years, of a period of time to attach themselves to this hospital, often to a specific doctor, right, to learn all the ins and outs of what this type of medical practice looks like. I think that sort of training or that sort of mentality of attaching yourself to a person for such a long period of time is kind of lost in our occupational world. Right? It doesn't take long to get trained for many jobs nowadays. Right? I'm not saying no jobs require lengthy training, but I'm saying many jobs are like, we're going to throw you into our two-week training program, and then you're going to be out there doing all of it. Right? Now, some jobs, that might be all that is necessary is, is two weeks of training, but I'm saying because so many jobs are like that, we can lose the mindset of what it means to actually be attached to someone and walk with someone as they show us what it means to live this life. And what we're going to see today is as Jesus comes to some more disciples, as he's calling them to an attachment to himself for, for the rest of their lives. That this is an attachment that, that they're going to be with him and they're going to live with him, right, forever, right? Now we know that Jesus is going to die and be resurrected and ascend into heaven, but they're still called to follow him and to live in relationship with him for the rest of their lives. So last week we saw two disciples turn into four disciples as the two went and got their brothers, right? As, as they were following, Jesus says, what are you seeking after? They said, we want to be with you. Where are you staying at? And Jesus said, come and see. So, right, so we saw that this desire turned into an invitation, and that invitation turned into life transformation for them. And now, as we get into the last part of John chapter 1, we're going to see two more disciples and their story and interaction with Jesus. So we're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So as we get into this first or this next discussion with the disciples, the first point is that we see that there is a cost to follow Jesus. Right? John begins us with telling begins with telling us that. The next day, after calling Andrew and Simon, he goes to Galilee, where he finds 
Philip, who is from Bethsaida, where Andrew and Peter were from. And upon finding Philip, Jesus speaks those words that are so familiar to us, right? He comes to him and says, follow me. Whatever, whatever Philip's life looked like at this point, it had just radically been changed. He has now been called to follow someone. This isn't just any other rabbi either. This is the Messiah himself has now come to Philip and said, follow me. While we look back on this and we can say, well, of course Philip would have followed him. Put yourself in his shoes for a second. This isn't a rabbi. This isn't someone that was trained by all of these uh, professional teachers all of his life. This is a carpenter from Nazareth who has a couple fishermen following him. And he comes to you and says, you follow me too. This is not, just, this is not the, the best private school that Philip's going to be attending now. This isn't the, the, the most prestigious thing that he could be a part of. Yet he has a decision to make. There's a cost to consider here. Philip has to decide, what am I going to be, am I willing to give all of this up to follow this carpenter from Nazareth that has some fishermen with him? And we see that the first aspect of this calling, the first aspect of the cost is that Philip has to forsake himself. He has to give up everything which he has known. Because Jesus is going to take them into a variety of different cities. And not just to those cities, but he's going to take them to the darkest place of those cities. Because that's where the sinners are. And remember, Jesus says, I've came to seek and to save the lost, right? It's the, it's the sick that need a hospital. And so Jesus goes to the darkest parts of these towns. And not only that, but we're going to see, right, we, we see it in Acts. The disciples end up living dangerous lives, all for the sake of following Jesus. This is what Philip has on the line. Am I going to follow this guy to a number of towns, to the darkest part of town, ultimately leading to my own dangerous life, possibly death? And Philip may not even know all these details, right? He doesn't know what's going to necessarily happen with Jesus and in the book of Acts, which is maybe even a more scary thought for you and me as we think about it. How how many of us fear the unknown more than we fear the known? He just knows he's stepping into relationship with this carpenter. And you may ask the question of, well, pastor, where do you see this? Where do you see Philip giving anything up when Jesus says, follow me? Because it doesn't say that he, he dropped anything, he gave anything up. But we have to take the Bible as a whole here, right? So we have to understand that when Jesus calls people to follow him, he's calling them to leave what they have, right? We see this in Matthew chapter 4, right, where he calls Peter and Andrew, where he actually comes to them and says, follow me. And it says, they left their nets and followed him. Or, let's just look at one other passage real quick where we see this show up. If you jump jump a couple chapters after that with Andrew and Peter, we're in Matthew chapter 8. Just listen, or you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Listen to what he says. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So he has a scribe come to him, and Jesus says, I, ain't, I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. So realize you're giving up a comfortable place to sleep. Or another guy comes and says, let me go do a funeral for my dad. And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Right now, this isn't Jesus saying that if you actually attend a funeral of your parent, that you're not a disciple of his. But what he's saying here is to follow him requires a willingness to give up everything. And in a sense, it is giving up everything. Even though you might not sell your house in order to follow Jesus, it means that your house isn't as meaningful as it was before you knew Jesus. It doesn't have a priority on your heart anymore. Jesus is telling them, follow me is more than just saying, how about you come worship with me for an hour or two on Sunday mornings. Right? He's calling them to a lifestyle change, a commitment for every aspect of their lives. They're going to have to forsake everything that they once pursued after. But he doesn't just call them to abandon everything. In the process of abandoning everything, they also hold on to something, or rather someone. So in the midst of forsaking themselves, he calls them to cling to himself. He calls them to cling to Jesus. As Philip is called to forsake his way of life, he does so with an understanding of who he's following, what he's getting out of this. Right? Look at verse 45. He comes to Nathanael and says, We found him, the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So Philip has this understanding that if he's going to follow Jesus, he might not have anywhere to lay his head. Or he might be leaving everything he once knew behind, but he knows that in the midst of following Jesus, he knows who he's with. He knows that this is the Messiah. And when he goes to Nathaniel, he says, this is the one we've been waiting for. If what Philip says there is right, how could he not give everything up? If he's right, that this is the one that Moses wrote about, if this is the one the prophets wrote about, if this is the Messiah who has now called him to follow, how could he not give it all up? How could there be any other decision? How could he possibly say no to the call to follow? How could you have the Son of God say, follow me, and you say no? But we see in Jesus' ministry that many people do that. There's a lot of people, right? We know the one story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says, go sell all you have. And he walks away saddened because he has many possessions and he just can't do it. So we see that it's possible to say no, but to those who recognize who Jesus is and understand his value and that he is worth giving up everything else for, we do it in a heartbeat. I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine you're walking in the woods and you see this clear box that's like anchored to the ground in the woods and you look in the box and you just see stacks and stacks of $100 bills. You try to count what you can and 
if you're good at math, maybe you estimated, say, say there's $50 million in this clear box. But it's anchored to the ground. You can't take it with you. On your way out of the woods, there's a for sale sign. So you call up the number on it. Maybe this guy doesn't know what's in there. Maybe he does and he's selling it with it, whatever. You call it up and the guy says, you can have everything. But you have to give me everything you have. Even trade. I'll take everything you have. You get that land. And everything included in the land. Now put your sentimental stuff aside, right? Would you make the trade? Would you give up your house? Would you give up your cars? Would you give up your possessions? Knowing the treasure that's included in the middle of the woods. I would imagine most of us, right, would probably say, yeah, $50 million? I can buy a new house with that. I can buy new cars with that, whatever. That's the story Jesus tells. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who was walking in a field and he found a treasure. And he went and he sold everything he had and he bought that field. Would you be willing to trade everything you have for the treasure of being able to walk with Jesus? Brothers and sisters, following Jesus costs you something. It costs us forsaking everything about ourselves. If you, it doesn't cost you anything to follow Jesus, you have to ask if you're really following him. Because if you look at the footsteps of Jesus, and you're following in those footsteps, his footsteps lead to a cross. And your footsteps should be following behind. Not necessarily that you're going to die on a cross, but that you have to die to yourself. I mean, just think about the Christian life and how unnatural it is for all of us. Every ounce of us, of our sinful flesh, wants people to like us. Wants people to think highly of us. But we know that in our day and age, the moment we begin to witness about Jesus, people's opinions of us come smashing to the ground. Or think about when you're spouse or loved one says a sarcastic comment to you. Everything in your sinful flesh says, I'm going to swing back with another one. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Or think about if you're anxious about your, your money, your retirement, how your bills are going to get paid. And then you have Jesus who says, be generous and give with a cheerful heart. Or think about parenting. Where you wake up in the morning and your flesh says, nobody's going to get in your way today. Nobody's going to stop you from getting done what you want to accomplish today. And ten minutes later, your child's already making you late. Following Jesus will cost you all your plans, all your purpose, all your priorities. Because we wake up every morning with a nature that looks at the world and says, this is my kingdom. But as a Christian, as one who follows Jesus, you've been transferred into God's kingdom. And you're not living by your rules anymore. But I promise you this, it's a kingdom that's infinitely better than your own. We're going to see as we continue with Nathaniel what it means, how, how it is we can forsake everything, what the posture of our heart needs to look like in order to forsake everything. Philip comes to Nathanael and tells him, 
who has called him. He says, this is Jesus, right? This is the Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about, the one the prophets wrote about. And we kind of get a humorous response in verse 46, right? Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, because Nazareth and Bethsaida are kind of like rival towns here, right? They're kind of rivals against each other. So, so Nathaniel's like, uh, are you sure? Can anything good really come out of that town? Because we remember Jesus is originally from Bethlehem, the royal town, the town of David, but he's not advertising that. People just know this is the carpenter from Nazareth. We hear this response and we think, man, Nathaniel is a jerk. Right? He, what a skeptic. But what we're going to find out is this is, it maybe sounds harsh at the beginning, but what we're going to see is that we have a genuineness to Nathaniel's heart that we're going to see as we continue in the passage. Philip offers him the same invitation that Jesus offered last week, right? Come and see. And we find out that Nathaniel is not going to be disappointed. The reason he's not disappointed is because he's coming with a certain heart posture as he approaches Jesus. First, he comes with a willingness to listen. Because, look, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him. Now, let's just stop there for a second. What does that tell you? Nathanael listened to Philip. Right? Nathaniel has all of these questions. Of, Can anything good really? Are you sure? And he says, come and see. Now, right then and there, Nathaniel could have said, I don't believe you. There's no way that the Messiah is from Nazareth. Not, not, not happening. I'm not going with you. But he went. He says, all right, let me hear this guy out. Let me at least hear what this Jesus has to say. So first he has a willingness to listen to Philip and then ultimately to Jesus. So we see first he has a willingness to listen. He could have stayed in his regular life. He could have studied the Old Testament. He could have prayed and tried to love love God in that way. But instead he said, I'm not so caught up, so prideful, so busy that I can't go listen to this Jesus. So this is where the posture of heart begins, is this willingness to listen. And then Jesus sees Nathanael coming and he gives this announcement of him. Right? He says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Sounds like a pretty good compliment, right? Jesus sees you coming. He says, there's somebody who has no deceit in them. Now, he's not calling him sinless. Right? We have to understand here, he's not calling him sinless. But what he's saying is, he, here comes someone with an honest heart. Here comes someone that's not seeking to manipulate the situation, who's trying to find something of how, what can he get out of it. He's not trying to deceive anybody here. He's just coming with an open heart saying, let me hear and see what happens. And it's with that heart posture that as Nathaniel comes to Jesus and he says this, that we see Nathaniel's response, the second part of his, hosh, his heart posture, is that he has a willingness to alter Right? Now, I don't mean a sacrifice altar. I mean an altar as of like change, changing his mind about something. He alters his direction. 
Because look, when Jesus says this about him, look at verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? There's hints already that Nathanael already is starting to believe what Philip has told him about Jesus. Because think about it, if you're a skeptic and you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus announces that as you're walking, your first question is what? Who told you? Right? Philip must have told you that. I, I don't believe that you actually know that. But he's actually coming to Jesus. He's like, how do you know? He's like, so clearly he's saying Jesus already knows me in a sense. This, this Messiah already knows who I am. He already knows what's going on inside my heart. He actually can say there's no deceit, there's, that there's an honest, genuine heart coming to him. So we see him hinting at his belief here. We see that Nathaniel's willingness to hear ultimately leads to him having a willingness to alter his mindset accordingly. Nathaniel says, let the chips fall where they may. Jesus gives this tiny little insight of here comes someone in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel now has his heart changed to belief simply by one sentence of Jesus. And we're going to see that this increases to the point of Nathaniel calling him the son of God and king of Israel. So clearly he's a believer. You know, one of the hardest and most rewarding things about being a parent is you see a broad spectrum of your child's heart. Sometimes, it doesn't matter what you say, your child thinks they know the best, right? No matter what. For me, it's like when you try to get them to eat vegetables, they're absolutely sure it's poison. Or when it's raining outside or lightning outside, they think, no, that's fun. Or when you say it's time to go to bed, they think, no. Another two hours is best for me. But there's other times when I come to my kids and all I have to say is, I just need you to trust me. I just need you to know that I love you. And they don't ask any questions. The, the issue is no longer an issue. It just stops right then and there. There's just belief of, okay, I think that's what Jesus means when he says he wants us to have faith like children. I think that's one aspect of it, that he wants us, when he says, follow me, he wants us to just say, okay, what's that look like? This heart posture of willingness to say, let me hear you, and then let me alter my direction, my course of life accordingly. Brothers and sisters, the genuine heart that pleases God is a heart that is willing to listen and a heart that is willing to make alterations. First, you must be willing to listen. Your life is probably busier than any other generation in history. You're surrounded by TV, phones, email, computers, activities, fast food, highways, Everything in this world shouts to you, do more. Do it as fast as you can, and then do something else. And I would say that this affects 
our willingness to sit down and listen. I would argue that if your walk with the Lord now looks either the same or worse than it did 10 years ago, this probably plays a role in it. That you have a schedule that's so full, your time with the Lord of listening has been limited. Or even if you read your Bible and pray, you do so so quickly to make sure that you just get it done, that you don't actually really sit and listen and take in what God is saying. We need to learn how to slow down. But then the second one, we must be willing to alter our lives according to what we hear. It's not enough just to hear Jesus. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, but you don't know your neighbor's name, something has to change. Or when Jesus says, try to live at peace with everybody as much as it depends on you, and you're holding bitterness towards somebody, something's got to change. Or when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, and you've never come, along some, come alongside somebody in their life and poured into their life spiritually, something has to change. You have to approach your relationship with God with a willingness to listen and a willingness to alter your course of direction. Because... God always has more to show you. And that's our last point. There's always more to see. Look at the second part of verse 48, going into 49. He said, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Jesus just reaffirms in Nathanael's mind, right? Before you ever came, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. This just reaffirms in Nathanael's mind that this is the Messiah. So he calls him the Son of God, the King of Israel. Just even at this point, Jesus is telling him, there's more for you still to see. Right? He just went from, how do you know me, to, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Nathaniel, even at this point, is just gaining more and more insight into who Jesus is. But Jesus promises, in the next couple of verses, something more. He says, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. You think my GPS capabilities or something? That I'm able to tell you where you were, you know, an hour or two ago? You just wait and see. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. So he starts general, you'll see greater things. But then verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So now we go from a general, you'll see greater things, to a specific moment of what this greater thing might look like. And he gives these details that would have resonated with them. First he says, you'll see heaven opened up. Now, that can be kind of more general. That could be a number of possibilities. But then he gets real specific. You'll see angels ascending and descending. This would have taken any Jew 
back to Jacob in Genesis. Jacob has this vision of this ladder going to heaven and angels ascending and descending from the ladder, showing that Jacob, in one sense, was having access to God at that point. So their minds would have flashed to this vision in Genesis that they would have read time and time again. Now some argues that since this is about access to God, like Jacob had that, This is all pointing towards the cross. That Jesus is talking about a moment on the cross here where he's going to die and give us access to God. But we can't miss the end. I think he's pointing to something, maybe pointing to that in one sense, but also to something else in the future. We see him say they will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This isn't from Jacob's vision. The title Son of Man is never used. It's actually rarely kind of used in the Old Testament. It's, Ezekiel uses it to talk about himself. He calls himself just like a mere son of man. There's only like one instance really that we see this used of a Messiah type of figure. And it's in Daniel chapter 7. So let me read this for you here real quick. It's just two verses in Daniel. And it says... Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, who is Yahweh, God, and he is given a kingdom that never ceases, a kingdom that goes on forever, that that has people from all nations, all tribes, all languages serving him. So I think while Jesus may, in one sense, with the angels and the access to God, could be pointing to his death and resurrection, I think there's a bigger thing to say here that he's pointing towards his second coming when he inaugurates a new heavens and a new earth and people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be worshiping him for all eternity. And so Jesus is telling them, whether you're now here with me at the beginning of my ministry, whether you're with me at my death and resurrection, whether you're in the book of Acts after I've ascended, there's always more to see. There's always something greater to step into. You think about our world of movies in the last couple decades, right? What's been the popular trend? Sequels, right? Trilogies, like, right? You have all these different series that have been created. You have Star Wars, you have Lord of the Rings, you have the Marvel Universe movies, and on and on and on. There's more and more sequels being produced. Why does that idea work? I think it's because once you've watched one and you've seen the story and you feel part of that story, you want to see what else exists in that story. By them saying there's a sequel, you are given the idea there's more to see. There's something else you haven't found out yet, something that's going to happen or something that happened in the past that you don't know how it affected that first movie. 
You see, consumers have bought the idea that in each movie there's something else to be seen. There's more to see. There's more to know. There's more to understand about that universe that the movie took place in. In a much better way, Jesus is saying, there's always more to see. Brothers and sisters, no matter where you're at in life, Jesus always has more for you to see. If you haven't trusted in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, first he wants you to see him as Savior and Lord. But if you have forsaken yourself and cling to Jesus, he still has more to show you. He has more to show you about who he is, more about his love, his holiness, his righteousness, his power, and more about how he wants you to live in this world, more about how he wants you to have wisdom in the decisions that you make, more about how you can love your family better, more about the affections that he wants you to have for him and for his way of life. And until the day that Jesus comes back again and the new heavens and the new earth are the new normal for us, there's always more to see. And I would even argue that after that day, we still will never be able to exhaust it. That for all eternity, we're going to have the privilege of every day waking up, if we even have to sleep, waking up and saying there's more to see. For all eternity, God's saying there's more to see. So the question for you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has more for you to see? And if you say you believe it, does it matter to you? If it does, which it should for anybody who claims to follow Jesus, how do you approach it? Are you willing to slow down? Willing to listen? Willing to hear what it is he wants you to see? And then make life alterations accordingly. If you're not willing to do this, have you really forsaken yourself and clung to Jesus? But if you do desire to slow down and have your life changed, as Jesus continues to show you more, it is in those moments that you will see more and more how beautiful Jesus is. How steadfast his love is how life-giving his wisdom is, and how worthy of worship he is. Then you will look at Jesus and you will know the cost to follow him. And you will say, I will forsake all of this just to embrace Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, You've called us to follow you. You've called us to follow Jesus. May we have hearts that are willing to hear your words each day. And not only willing to hear them, but willing to change our life accordingly. May we approach each and every day with an understanding that there's always more to see about you. And may that stir our hearts not to put it off until the next day, but to that day see what it is you want us to know about you. To hear it and to change accordingly. We know that there's a cost to follow you. There's a cost to be in relationship with you, but we know how much better it is to walk with you than anything else in this world. 
may we be willing to forsake it all and cling to Jesus until that day when he brings the new heavens and the new earth and we for eternity will know that there's always more to see and we will spend forever knowing more and more about you never exhausting it but always worshiping in it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.